All right, we are to be going now. I'm to be pressing the record. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large and marathoner-in-training, Leah Leibovitz. Hi. Hello. How are you right now? You did a hard one and a half miles this morning, Leo. I already did an hour on the Peloton with Jen Sherman this morning to go with my Shachris davening and my transcendental meditation. And your transcendental meditation. So your daily My, my three-hour is- self-care morning <laughs> has been going on very well. Well, I'm glad we scheduled this around all of your various self-empowerment commitments because I actually, how do you have time in the day for all this stuff? <laughs> Basically, this is my life. Can you introduce me? Oh, also another co-host, tablet deputy <laughs> editor, Stephanie Butnick. It's like I didn't do enough this morning to deserve. Like, like it's That's like right. I haven't, I haven't centered. You only, only cared for a baby. What, what have you? What did you do? <laughs> you guys know what I did though, because I told you I met with the locksmith. I had a true New England Village morning in that the locksmith came. But that, that's all I did. Stephanie, what did you do? Well, I met with the locksmith um, at Barney Greengrass. <laughs> <laughs> Is there somewhere an appetizing shop or a deli called the locksmith? I hope so. We've talked about how like hair places have the best and worst punny names, but oh, maybe yeah. like what we need is a cheeky Jewish appetizing shop. Well, West Hartford, Connecticut used to have locks, stock, and barrel. There's your punning moment. That's a starting point. That is hardly an ending point. That pales in comparison to where I used to get my shawarma growing up in Herzliya, the one and only pita pan. <laughs> <laughs> but does it even work in that accent? Nemaze pita pan. Pita pan. Sorry, what are, what are we doing? What show is this? Where, yeah, what show is this? This is Unorthodox. We do have a Jewish guest this week. It's State Senator Eric Lesser from Massachusetts, from, from my home district in Springfield, Longmeadow, Massachusetts. My dad's and mom's state senator. He's running for attorney general of Massachusetts. And he, no, lieutenant governor, even cooler than AG. And also he brought satyrs to the Obama White House when he was an Obama staffer. So it's, it's going to be super fly. And a lovely segment from our very own associate editor and former Quintern, Quinn Waller in which anticipating Passover as an aspiring Jew studying for conversion, she decides that she better learn to cook matzo ball soup. But speaking of food, Stephanie Butnick, apparently there's been a major food milestone at Butnick North on the Upper West Side. You want to fill us in? Well, I'm officially that person who only talks about their child. And I was like, oh, I hate being that person. Then I'm like, wait, that's all I do. I hang out with Edith. But she had Bamba for the first time this weekend. She's officially like an Israeli baby who, you know. Uh, Very good. Very good. Very proud. Edith Isadora Cohen, you are a Jew. So, okay. I have some (laughs) thoughts about this Bamba thing. What came first? Was it just the rise in peanut allergies here or the rise in our awareness of them? Or was it the fact that Everyone saw that study that said no one in Israel has peanut allergies because they all serve bombas right when you come out of the womb. Or was it Trader Joe's bringing over bomba to their stores? Oh, no, no. It wasn't Trader Joe's bringing over bomba. That's been very recent. On this podcast, we were talking about that there's some evidence that there are fewer peanut allergies in Israel. And the thinking is because they're given peanuts as bomba in bomb, they're conveyed in, in the, bomba they're, form. The delivery vehicle is bomba at a young age. And that was four or five years ago. We talked about that. And Trader Joe's brought I remember over. when Trader Joe's started offering bomba and then we like brought a bunch to a live show. So you're right. So our conversation predated this, but now everyone I know, like bomba is just like a thing you eat for you give your baby. Because it dissolves so well. Is that why? Because it's... Yeah, well, yeah, it's like a puff. Plus, it's delicious. It's like the greatest thing ever. True. Now, by that logic, Stephanie, why weren't we just always giving children those wonderfully dissolving cheese? Yeah, cheese doodles dissolve marvelously. This is not the same. We haven't said what Bamba 
is our, to the people who have, I guess, haven't gotten to Trader Joe's and haven't listened to like five years ago of our show, they're peanut puffed treats. So they, they're essentially a cheese doodle, but peanut. And they are amazing. I ate like half a bag. Edith freaking loved it. She like sucked on them till they were soggy. And then by like day three of feeding them to her, she started like crunching them when they were crispier. And she got, she got no teeth. It's just really amazing. So that's, you know, next week she's going to have shakshuka and I'll tell you all about it. And she's almost ready for the IDF. Okay, so Stephanie, these are your children. Mark, what did your children do this week? Okay, so speaking of, you know, enlightened parenting in the 21st century, one of my daughters, I won't embarrass her by saying which one, was at Hebrew school this past weekend and came back and I said, how was it? She said, oh, dad, it was great. We learned about this. We talked about the Parsha. We learned, you know, these words in Hebrew, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But- I have to say, they started with yoga. And I said, well, what's wrong with that? Now, my children, I should back up here and say, everywhere my children go in life, somebody tries to teach them yoga. Public school, <laughs> private school, shul school. Somebody says, oh, I know what we'll do with the little kitties. We'll do five minutes of yoga to start. And it's always like some volunteer parent who's studying for their yoga license certification and wants to practice on the children. And they come in and they do like tiger stance and aardvark stance and greet the day and greet the night and all these other yoga things. <laughs> and the kids invariably- <laughs> do the I, robot and yeah. They, that's right. The shopping cart, the robot, the running man. And invariably, and I'm talking, now I've been parenting for almost 16 years now, right? I've got, I've got a decent sample size at this point. Every one of these, of my children who's been, this has been inflicted on, will come home and say, that was the stupidest thing they ever made me do. And then they'll say things like, aren't we supposed to actually learn stuff in school? Like all of a sudden they're super uptight about their, you know, they're, they're rigorous about this. <laughs> like, dad, I mean, I don't love school exactly, but if we're going to be there, shouldn't we learn history or verbs or, you know, geometry theorems? Like why yoga? Like, how does this close the achievement gap, dad? So that was her report from religious school. But then Monday afternoon, she comes home from school, you know, public school and says, okay, dad, I told my friend Ezra, Ezra, like, you know what really sucks is like Jewish school yoga. And Ezra looked at me and said, honestly, then you've never endured Unitarian yoga. <laughs> this is unbelievable. Because <laughs> it turns out he goes to the Unitarian church where the yoga is really hard. Like religious school is only yoga. <laughs> so they were comparing religious school yoga notes and basically both saying, maybe next time we could have some religion in our religion instead of stretching in our religion. And I just, you know, this is, this is not me. This is just from the mouths of the babes. That's all. It's just coming straight from the mouths of the babes. So we now have Hatha yoga, Vinyasa yoga, Bikram yoga, Unitarian yoga, Hebrew school yoga. <laughs> Ralph Waldo Emerson yoga, Rashi yoga. The yoga where you stand on one foot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, that's a ton of the class waiting to happen. By the way, that let's do that. Sorry, my take from what you just said, Mark, is that we should make a new version of yoga that's Hillel yoga. Guys, then we can start our own training certification program and just sell bogus training. Then someone can say, I'm a master trained unorthodox yoga teacher. And then I will have one in which you stand on no feet because I'm the Shamai house <laughs> yoga. So it's funny you should mention this because, uh, you know, as listeners of the show know, I'm very proud uh, in my identity as a basic bitch, which is the only identity <laughs> I take seriously. You do everything in Uggs. I like Starbucks. I like Uggs. I like Peloton. I like whatever kind of basic, <laughs> soulless, shallow trend. Like, that's me. I'm right there. I love it. Uh, and so, of course, I'm also a little bit into yoga. And now that I'm training for the marathon and realizing that I really need to engage my core, as uh, Jen Sherman says in Peloton, I've really kind of dabbled in yoga these last couple of weeks. Now, 
this Sunday, we had a couple of hours in which Hudson was at a, at a play date and I asked Lily what she wanted to do. And she's like, oh, you know, I've seen you going to yoga. But she's like, how about we do a yoga class? And I said, fine. And then figured out that basically no place in New York allows children under 15 to do yoga because it's all like hot yoga with like corporate liability and like this whole Michigan. I said, okay, fine. I have like three hours to go. I'll, I'll get on the internet. I'll find some yoga teacher. I'm like, yogizaras.biz or something like that and have the person come over and we'll do the thing. I'm telling you this because I had precisely zero time to actually ascertain who the yoga teacher is. I booked the thing. It's great. We have like an hour window. The guy comes and I'm like, oh, it's going to be great. It's going to be some kind of, you know, yogi sort of Buddhist, like very in the Zen zone. The guy comes like, uh, hello, uh, my name is Avi. <laughs> So first of all, I'm like, oh my God, I am loving this so much. So Avi, uh, who is, of course, a neighbor from Tel Aviv. Uh, of course, and, you know, of course. As, as we figured out, Avi doesn't even have a six pack. He doesn't even have a 12 pack. It's like three cases of whatever. It's like, it's amazing. <laughs> it's like this perfectly formed human being. And he was so incredibly great because the one thing that always, I, I wouldn't say bothered me with yoga, but kind of like pulls me out of the zone a little bit is when it gets to like, and now we will embrace our third eye and we will let the karma wash over us. It's like, guys, I'm a Jew. Like, none of that stuff really works on me. You're like, I get enough of that from my transcendental meditation. Thank you. I don't need it from my yoga. Correct. I've already had an hour of that every morning. But when Avi comes along, it's like, as soon as it starts turning to that realm, he like turns on the Israeli. It's like, uh, well, now you do it. It was like basically like being trained by the Zohan. <laughs> <laughs> it was so great. At some point, he says, uh, there are no bad students in yoga. And Lily says, except for my dad. And Avi <laughs> says, maybe except for your dad. <laughs> so fantastic. It's like yoga with the very idea of edge. You get bummed by at the end. It was amazing. Listen, I'm a little concerned that, you know, we've been we've been getting soft here. We're just, apparently all we're doing is sitting around and eating and stretching. So I want to give us, um, I actually thought that we would get a little culture in our lives. So I want to, before we get to news the Jews, I, I want to issue us a challenge. There's only one movie in the past year that only Liel and I have seen that Stephanie hasn't seen. I don't think I've seen a movie in a year. I will just there say There was only one movie that, that Stephanie's going to see in the 12-month period ending next month. And that is the extraordinary movie, Licorice Pizza, which if you know anything about it, first of all, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, who did Boogie Nights and other great movies, Magnolia. Second, super Jewy in content. Third, set in the 1970s. So basically, it's the, it was made for me. It was like- Greatest soundtrack ever of any movie ever made, et cetera. Greatest soundtrack ever. Terrific commentary about Jewishness, about LA, about movie culture features all three of the Heim sisters from the uh, Israeli-American band Heim. So I want to issue a challenge. We tried doing a book club a few years ago, and we chose a book that was 900,000 pages long, although great. My bad. And so now we're going to choose a movie that's, what, two and a half hours long? Two? Whatever. That's doable. And it's now streaming, right? It is. So in a month or two, we're going to talk about licorice pizza. After Pesach, because I don't know if licorice pizza is kosher for Passover. So there you go. So I'm, I have, you're giving me basically a month to watch this, which I appreciate. We're giving you one month. And our and listeners. I'm right now, producers, would you keep us on task? Would you remind us four episodes from now, we're talking about licorice pizza. Three episodes after Pesach, we're going to talk about licorice pizza. And by the way, I've heard less glowing things than the ones you are saying about the movie. They're and wrong. particularly about the Jewish stuff. So I'm, I'm excited to watch it with sort of like my eagle eyes. 
might be the best movie I've watched in 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 a decade. Easy. I it's completely agree. So don't I, stop saying stuff about it. I'm not sure when I loved a movie more. I walked out of that. I said that is that is art. That is. You walked out. Said wish I had drugs. So I'm gonna watch it, and then we're gonna all talk about it, and our listeners are gonna watch it too. And that's gonna be great. News of the Jews, two, two items from the Jewosphere this week. That's it. Only two things happened in all of world Jewry this week. First of all, um, there are a few places in America where you can get conservative rabbinical ordination. One of the biggies is the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies at American Jewish University in greater Los Angeles. And they've just, they've just made a big splash insofar as rabbinic schools can make a big splash by saying they're chopping their tuition from $31,000 and change down to $7,000 a year. Now, to be fair, most rabbis get a lot of financial aid when they're in seminary. And so it's not like lots of people are paying $31,000 a year. You know, whether I don't know if this is a marketing ploy or if it's the real thing or whatever, but it's just warmed my heart a little bit because I have long thought that one of the problems facing the rabbinate is that it's so expensive to go to rabbi school. And so if you go when you're straight out of college and you have no dependents, no family yet, no mortgage, and you're willing to take on a lot of debt, maybe that's doable. But there may be some people in say their 30s or 40s or 50s who would like to go to rabbi school as second or mid-career rabbis. And then they say, oh, right, but I only have to go a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt to do it while having no income for five years. And it's basically a no-go. And I've thought, given that there is some money in the Jewish community, how is it that we won't fund 50 or 100 rabbinical students a year for free outside the Orthodox world. It's just crazy. So this made me think this is a small baby step, but it's still not anywhere near where we need to be. I'm in, Stilla. Shouldn't rabbinic training be free? Are you, are you guys with me there? Not that like professors should be volunteering their time, but that the philanthropists should step up, that the big foundations should just, if, if they have a billion dollars, you know, take a few million and just pay for, for seminary. I mean, it's, there aren't that many rabbinical students. It could be, it could be free. And I, I'm shocked that it's not. I'm just, I'm just shocked. And here, by the way, if you have a couple billion dollars and you're listening to us on Thursday morning <laughs> right now, here's the challenge. What I really think we need, I really think we need, this may sound crazy because we got a bunch of them. I think we need a new seminary. And I think we need an interdenominational seminary that would, you know, put a stop to all this mission. Guys are like, oh, well, where are the, you know, reconstructionists and we don't do things the way reformers. Let's have like one big serious ordination project that starts one big, serious, cross-denominational faction, and all of it paid. You just come here, and it's the best of the best, and it's a new cadre, a new Peace Corps, a new elite of American rabbinate. To be fair, that is, I mean, there are some seminaries, including Hebrew College in Boston, which are which are transdenominational and ordaining people with different levels of, of observance. But but I agree, it should be this big, massive center that is funded and, you know, where, where it all goes down, where it all happens. I love this idea of everyone agreeing enough on all of these things <laughs> to educate all these <laughs> aspiring rabbis in these various movements. It's definitely going to happen. Yeah. Definitely going to happen. Just We're all write the check and it's that. all going to happen. Everyone will agree. Make it out to unorthodox. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> should we, in addition to our yoga certifications, should we also start, you know, doing rabbi certifications? You're an unorthodox rabbi slash yoga instructor. I mean, guys, the, the money bandwagon that I'm still shocked we've never gotten on is that nobody's asked us to perform their wedding. I mean, how it is that we haven't been... There's also you know, not that much money in doing weddings. Somewhere out there, an actual rabbi is I, laughing like, oh, it's cute. <laughs> he thinks I get paid for that. I got $300 and, and a chicken. There is, if you charge what we're going to charge for our invisible, non-existent, Smicha. affianced clients, there's big money, big money. Speaking of weddings, Netflix announced a new series based off the popularity of Indian matchmaking. This one's called Jewish Matchmaking. This is just such a red, like this is something that like, I am so confident they are going to mess up. So the show, according to Netflix, follows singles in the U.S. and Israel as they turn their dating life over to a top Jewish matchmaker. Will using the traditional practice of shidduch help them find their soulmate in today's world? So much can go wrong here. (laughs) Basically, Netflix is taking this thing that definitely exists for a lot of people, and they're being like, what if we did this? What if modern people used a matchmaker? And you're like, there are a lot of people today who use a matchmaker. The only thing that could make the show better for me is if it merged with another Netflix show that I became obsessed with over the weekend. The great Is It Cake? I don't know if you watched the show Is It Cake? But it's basically a show in which bakers make cakes that look like everyday objects. And then you have to guess, is it the object or <laughs> is it cake? So like maybe the two people meet together with a matchmaker. They make a cake that looks like tefillin or, you know, charosas or gefilte fish. And then you have to guess, is it cake and is it a shidduch? See, I think it's actually, I think that's brilliant, but it almost takes too much work. All you have to do is just have a, an all-Jewish bachelor or bachelorette. And just, you know, I want a Jewish woman with 20 Jewish guys ranging in various levels of observance. There's yes, the secular guy, yes. there's a chassid, there are four kinds of chassid. Oh, you know, you know the chassid's gonna rock that. <laughs> Some of them when it's when it's pool time or cocktail hour by the pool, you know, strip down to their talit katan. And then the question is like, will the bachelorette take off her shadal? And I, I mean Obviously, there's problems here with Sneas, with modesty. There's some there's some things that have to be worked around. And maybe, you know, and the thing is season by season, like, no, 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 no. I've got it. <laughs> season one, it's like sort of reform, conservative, fairly mainstream American, right? But someone who wants to marry Jewish. Season two, it's mod orth, modern orthodox. Season three, Shkverer or Chassid or Breslov or something, right? And like the women are all there fighting with each other, but the man, the bachelor, he's never there actually. <laughs> they don't see him until he actually chooses one of them. And then they meet for the first time a week before the wedding. And you just, there's so many different iterations of this. So I don't know. I'm, I'm happy for Netflix, but I feel like they haven't iterated enough yet. Do you know what though? This is giving me a chance to air one of my biggest grievances, my biggest linguistic grievances And it's when people use the word yenta to describe a matchmaker. And that is not correct. I'm so with you there. People say it all the time, like, oh, I'm going to get a yenta to set me up. And this is rooted in the fact. It's Hello Dolly, right? No, it comes from Fiddler on the Roof, where yenta is a matchmaker. The matchmaker is named yenta. So everyone assumes that a yenta is a matchmaker. A yenta is a yenta. Matchmakers, how about this? Matchmakers can be yentas. Yenta's right, but not, not all Yenta's always, are match. Yeah. Yenta, Yenta, make me a match. A Yenta's a busybody. Yeah, it's like a busybody, like someone who's nosy, who's in everyone's business. And that's why her name was Yenta in Fiddler on the Roof, played exceptionally in the Yiddish production of Fiddler on the Roof by Jackie Hoffman, our unorthodox VIP. Stephanie, couldn't agree with you more. I've heard that solecism. That's a hill I'm willing to die on. Netflix, so come for me. Come for her at 914-570-4869 or unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Make a match, make a man, make a man. 
a match Find me a fine, catch me a catch Nine after nine in the dark I'm alone So find me a match of my own Our Jew of the Week is very close to my heart. Literally, it's Massachusetts State Senator Eric Lesser, who as a junior staffer on Obama's campaign brought the Seder to the White House for the first time. He's now running for Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts because what path to the top doesn't include a stop at Lieutenant Governor? But he joined us at my request to talk about Friendly's Ice Cream, Western Massachusetts, and all things 413. So, Senator Lesser, everywhere I go, people hear I'm from Springfield, and then they say, oh, you're from Longmeadow. And I have to make clear, no, I'm not from Longmeadow. I'm from the other side of the tracks. I'm from Springfield. But you, in fact, are from the elite, cushy, uh, preserve redoubt of Longmeadow, right? I am from Longmeadow, uh, although I I do know your dad. Uh, He's a constituent. (laughs) Right. So your district district is Longmeadow and and some of Springfield, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah. And uh, there's other communities too, but but the Jewish community is centered Springfield and Longmeadow. You got some Hamden, some Wilbraham maybe. Like what else what else do you have in there? So I've got Chicopee, a uh, big part of Chicopee, which is a city just to the north of Springfield. And then I've got seven towns uh, that range from Longmeadow, East Longmeadow, Hamden, Wilbraham, uh, and then Belchertown and Granby uh, in Hampshire County. Fucking Chicopee, man. That's where I failed my driver's <laughs> test was the DMV in Chicopee. And I had heard that it was easier up there. So I'd gone to the Chicopee DMV because I heard, well, they pass everyone. And then- motherfuckers failed me and I had a party to go to that night. I was going to drive up in the Plymouth Voyager under my own speed with my own license and I couldn't go. Worst day of my life. <laughs> so would you just talk yeah, to my, them for we me? We might be you? able to do something about that. This is actually why we invited you on. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. um, That's good. So which is your go-to friendlies then? Is there still one at the Longmeadow shops or do you have to oh, go into Springfield? You're, you're dating yourself here. So... The Friendlies on Sumner Ave is probably the one you grew up going to. Uh, sure, right, right off uh, exit two, yeah, in right co- in, in yeah. Cozy Corner, yeah, yeah, in, uh, yeah, yeah, in yeah. Springfield, and then there no, was the Longmeadow Friendlies. Yeah. Both are now closed. Uh, you you gotta you gotta travel a, a pretty long distance to find an open Friendlies these days. Their headquarters is still in Wilbraham. Where do you go, Holyoke Mall? Holyoke Mall is not uh, is not open yet anymore either. They've got one in Wilbraham. Uh, you might have remembered the one in Enfield, right, o- right sure. across the border. Yeah, that one's sure. closed too. Sure. Uh, yeah, no, Friendlies has been uh, is a shell of its former self, unfortunately. Senator, you would not believe on this like podcast of Jewish news <laughs> and culture how much Mark manages to talk about the fribble, the fishamajig, the this, the Friendlies, the jubilee oh, roll. <laughs> Those are classic. Stephanie, just indulge me. We indulge me like one one more minute here. Why so- stop now? We're friend. This is the Friendlies. <laughs> friendlies sponsoring this podcast, I think. I'm assuming you did some day camp at the JCC back in the day. Absolutely. Yeah, so you're good. You've got my vote. Not that I vote in Western Mass anymore. You've totally got my vote. So tell us, like, how did you hook up with the Obama campaign? Let's go back. We're, we're going to get up to you running for, for lieutenant governor now, but was this right after law school, right after Harvard Law? You'd heard about this, like, skinny kid with a funny name, as he used to call himself, and said, I want to I want to hop on that train. Like, how did it happen? So it was actually, uh, I was in college. Uh, it was 2007. And I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to do 
uh, when I graduated. It was actually a little bit before that. I was helping out as a volunteer for the Deval Patrick campaign for governor sure. in Massachusetts back in 2006. And I remember uh, we were, it was maybe a couple days before election day in 2006. And I got an email from someone on the Deval Patrick team saying, hey, Eric, you know, why don't you invite some of the students that had been volunteering? I think the email literally said a guy named Barack Obama is going to be speaking at an event for Deval. Why don't you invite some of the students to come come here and speak? So, you know, I sent an email out to our list and, you know, people who have been involved in politics know how this goes. I was expecting like five or six people to show up and we'd take the tea over to the event and, and go. I sent this email out and there were dozens and dozens of people, I mean, probably close to a hundred actually that responded to me, many of whom I had never met or talked to really, or engaged with uh, after working on a campaign for almost a year. So we went to the event and uh, I was blown away. Uh, And I kind of decided at that point, I wanted to do what I could uh, to help him once, of course, Duvall's uh, campaign was over in 2006. So I just started driving up to New Hampshire with a group of people, mostly on the weekends, uh, my senior year of college. And we would just go up to New Hampshire. And uh, this was kind of just before Facebook and social media. We used to use meetup.com before it got sketchy to find other Obama supporters. And we would go you know, knock on doors, we would hold signs, we would do this, do that. In the beginning, there wasn't even an office open or really any kind of formal staff or structure. But then as time went on, you know, they opened a staff, they had a team that met us and, uh, you know, and helped and helped kind of formalize it a bit. But those early days were a lot of fun. And it would always end at a bar in Manchester, New Hampshire called Strange Brew. Uh, so you'd spend a couple hours knocking on doors, holding signs, everyone would end up at the bar uh, hanging out uh, afterward. And uh, a lot of those people that were involved in that, that early effort you know, went on to work at the White House with me and you know, do a lot of other interesting stuff uh, later on. So how do you end up as the person who's in charge of, you know, like making sure the bags get from one place to the other for Obama? So my my kind of big break was when when Senator Obama would land in New Hampshire, I was kind of the gopher who helped get all the events set up and kind of get them from place to place and, you know, make sure the balloons were strung the right way at the at the rallies and things like that. Make sure that crowds were there to greet them, that kind of thing. And after the New Hampshire primary was over, that's really when you go from, you know, a state by state. People probably see like the Iowa caucuses, then the New Hampshire primary. But then you have this thing called Super Tuesday, which is, you know, at the time it was 20 plus states that were all basically voting at the same time. So you've got to scale the campaign really fast. So you go from a kind of localized race, state by state, in those early contests to a a real national campaign. So they literally rent a plane and they put, you know, Obama on the plane with all of the reporters who traveled with him. Uh, And then there were some Secret Service at that point, and then also a small team of staff members that were helping. So they needed basically like like a mom for a big family vacation to keep track of everything, the BlackBerry chargers, the luggage. So they asked me to join them uh, to kind of coordinate all that. They gave me a very inflated title, which was ground logistics coordinator. That's a trend (laughs) in politics. But uh, I was basically like the equipment manager for a sports team. You know, so it was my job to keep track of everyone's suitcases, BlackBerry chargers. So when you got to the White House, presumably it was something other than ground logistics coordinator. What was the title they gave you there? And what was your job? Uh, so that that job was special assistant to David Axelrod, which really was assistant. But they they uh, again do have this way of putting the word special in front. Special just means you work even harder. Uh, but uh, but it was a, a really incredible job. So um, 
I, I started working for David during the transition. So after the election was over in November of 08, went to help him at the transition, first in the Chicago office uh, as the things were first getting set up. Then eventually there was a small office in D.C. that the transition was working out of and then walked into the uh, West Wing on Inauguration Day in 2009. And immediately decided they need to have a Seder coming up in a few months. Yeah, well, the, the Seder the Seder actually backtracked a little bit to the campaign trail. The first Seder we did was in April of 2008. I was traveling with two other uh, Jewish staffers, Arun Chaudhry, who was the videographer, and Herbie Ziskind, uh, who was one of the advanced staffers. So, so kind of make a long story short, we were going to be in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the first night of Passover. And there was no way, given the logistics of the travel and how fast we were moving that I was ever going to get home to Longmeadow in Western Mass uh, to celebrate. So Arun, Herbie, and I decided we were going to do our own kind of makeshift Seder in Harrisburg the night of the first Seder. And that day was a very kind of chaotic day for the campaign. Uh, Senator Obama was starting his day in Philadelphia and was taking a train trip from Philadelphia to Harrisburg, stopping all along the way and then ending the night in Harrisburg. Uh, so I remember mentioning to him uh, that we were going to be doing this impromptu Seder in uh, at the Sheridan, in this windowless basement in the Sheridan in Harrisburg uh, when we were done with the day. And he kind of politely nodded and he actually said to me, oh, I'll, I'll try, try to come. I thought he was being polite. One thing leads to another. We were about to sit down uh, to get started and I hear this very familiar voice walk in and he says, uh, oh, hey, is this where the Seder is? We said, yes. He sits down and uh, we start going through it. I was using the Maxwell House Haggadah, awesome. which my cousin uh, snagged from the UPenn Hillel in Philadelphia because that's where we had started the day. So old school. Obama's a pretty intense guy, which I'm sure is a shock to people. But we were going through the mark, kind of marching through the whole Haggadah. At one point, he turned to me and he said, "Eric, you know what is what do you and your family do at this part? And how do you usually celebrate this part?" And I kind of paused and I looked back at him nervously and I said, "Honestly, sir, my family's never gotten this far." <laughs> <laughs> We're normally eating by now. <laughs> uh, so uh, we, we we went through the Seder. And then, of course, everybody lifted their glasses to do the next year in Jerusalem. We, we, we lift our glasses. We sit next year in Jerusalem. We put down our, our glasses. And then he raised his glass. And he looked at all of us. And he said, next year in the White House. And so we, we lifted our glasses and said, amen. So fast forward a year later, I'm working for uh, David Axelrod. I had a kind of small cubby office uh, right next to the Oval Office. President Obama walks by one day, he pokes his head in and he says, hey, Lesser, are we uh, doing the Seder? And I kind of nervously said, well, I don't know, uh, sir. <laughs> but, you know, I wasn't planning it. And then he said, well, I said last year, next year in the White House, and here we are in the White House, so we're going to do it. So... It was the first time a, a Seder had ever been celebrated by an American president at the White House. And then we ended up doing it all eight years from uh, from the first year uh, on through his presidency. What do you do after that when you're like, oh, hi, family? How do you sort of come down from that? That's a good, that's a good question. I mean, we, we, we love Passover in our family. So we'll be celebrating with my three kids and uh, my in-laws. Uh, hopefully, we, we actually normally go to my in-laws, although the last couple of years, because uh, of COVID, that's been harder. So maybe this year, hopefully, we'll be back in Maryland with with them. But uh, no, it is a little bit of a letdown. Don't tell them I said that uh, to go from uh, to go from the White House to... Uh, it's only a problem if they listen to our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so listen, you're running for lieutenant governor. I have a few questions about this. First of all, 
so James Swift was from Pittsfield, right? Yeah, Williamstown, but clo- close to Pittsfield. Pitts, right. She was from Western Mass. Has there ever been a, another governor in the last century from west of 495? Really good question, Mark. Yeah, so the, the, only, the only recent one is Foster Furcolo, who was actually from Longmeadow. Uh, and he was, was in the that? 1950s, 19, early 1950s. Uh, he had been the member of Congress from uh, the kind of Springfield-Longmeadow area and then ran for governor and, and served as governor. But there has not been a, a governor from Western Mass, aside from Jane Swift, of course, uh, since then. I don't imagine you're going to face a lot of anti-Semitism in this campaign, but the anti-Western mass prejudice, I mean, basically it's Boston, Boston, and more Boston. And Jane Swift only got there because she was lieutenant governor and the governor right. became, he became ambassador to Canada, right? Governor Salucci. Exactly. You've got good uh, Massachusetts uh, political I, history here. I represent. So can it be done? Can a guy from Western Massachusetts get anywhere in state politics? Or is this is this the the sort of are these the horns on your head that you'll never be able to, to take off? Well, I certainly hope so. No, I think so. I, I think people are ready for kind of regional balance. I actually think that being from Western Mass, specifically from the, the Metro Springfield area, is a huge advantage, you know, especially in a five-candidate race. But also It never has been for me. <laughs> I mean, no one's ever said, oh, I, you're from Springfield. Let's give you the job. I mean, it's been, you know, I love Springfield, but I can't say, you know, there's no Springfield network. Stephanie is. Well, yeah. <laughs> Mark, he's from Longmeadow. <laughs> it would be someone from Longmeadow. It would be someone from Longmeadow. <laughs> so you think it could be done? You think you could, you could like get the Western Mass vote to hold while these other four candidates, who I presume are all from the Boston area, split that vote. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I also think that in a really, in a very real way, look, Massachusetts is unique. It's actually even different from, you know, other northeastern states like New York or Connecticut. You know, in New York, you've got Albany and New York City. In Connecticut, you've got Fairfield County and Hartford. I do think people are increasingly realizing that the the concentration of kind of wealth and expense and cost is not good uh, for Massachusetts. And we've got to have an approach that looks at Western Mass, Central Mass, the South Coast, New Bedford, Fall River, the Merrimack Valley, Lawrence, and Lowell. So I actually think as a Western Mass senator, I can come in and I can say, look, I understand what it feels like to be part of regions or communities in the state that have been ignored uh, and, and haven't gotten the investment and attention that they need. And frankly, a lot of people in Boston are in- increasingly agree with that because single biggest challenge Boston's got is out of control housing prices. I mean, people can't afford to live there. Yeah, can we get the high-speed train? Exactly. Because if you have a high-speed train going across the state, people can commute from my parents' neighborhood or or your neighborhood in Longmeadow, right? I mean, this is a no-brainer. Why is it? Yep. Why does, Wait, you're from Longmeadow? <laughs> why does anyone oppose this? Why has this not been done 30 years ago? Who's against a high, high-speed rail running alongside the Mass Pike? This is a good question. There is a certain, you know, bus company based in Springfield that has historically been, uh, has been historically been opposed. Oh, is it Peter Pan Bus? Is thwarting the high-speed train? Yeah. In fact, he wrote, I mean, it's- Peter Picknelly? He publicly has been against it, yeah. And, and, and he's, he's lobbied the governor against it. Uh, long known. Ask, ask your dad, Killa. He'll fill you in on some of this, but uh, Senator Lesser, you did say you have a story about Mark's dad. I would love to hear it. I know Tim Oppenheimer. We love we love that guy. What could you tell us the story? Well, Tim is a great guy. So I actually knocked on Tim's door uh, when I was campaigning in 2016. So Tim's uh, dad is a constituent. His his uh, his house is in my Senate district, and I was actually out knocking on doors. Talking about trains, actually, uh, Kitty Dukakis, uh, was, who's Michael Dukakis's wife, was out with me knocking on doors, partly because of their uh, enthusiasm for train service. And your dad, 
uh, came and answered the door. Uh, we had a great experience, a kind of out-of-body experience where he met Kitty Dukakis and we chatted, we connected one thing to another and uh, he's uh, he's been a good supporter ever since. So I'm very grateful for Tim uh, and for your My dad. My dad loves that story. My dad's like, yeah, Lesser shows up with Kitty Dukakis. Like, how, you know, how do you not vote for this guy? He pulls Kitty Dukakis from Eastern Mass all the way, 80 miles, which is Massachusetts. It's like, that's, you know, no one knows how to go that far. It comes full circle, Mark, because after knocking on your dad's door, uh, Mrs. Dukakis and I went to that Friendly's on Sumner Ave and uh, had lunch. <laughs> Got a fribble. <laughs> I like to think it was the happy ending Sunday. I mean, that's that would be strong. And now, of course, you just you guys would just go to that abandoned building, which has nothing yeah. in it right now. Exactly. But if we have the train, Friendly's is coming back for sure. <laughs> so, Senator Lesser, we here in the Jewish media love with the way other parts of the Jewish media cover Jewish people. Um, there is a wonderful profile of you in Jewish Insider that talks about your, you know, your interest in the lieutenant governorship. There's an amazing detail in here that I believe you would only find in a Jewish publication, which is that David Axelrod says, like, you always carry club soda. So anytime he spills <laughs> on himself, you would like be there to dab some seltzer on him. And that's, I just want, there's not a question there. I just want to repeat that for our listeners. That is the most absurd detail I've ever read in any. It, it's the, it's the neurosis in me. What can I say? I think we've you all got a You can drink it. You can clean a spot off your boss's tie. It's like the all-purpose wonder. That's what you're going to do for Massachusetts. Exactly. Yeah. No, no, no detail too small for the Commonwealth. Final question. If you win for Lieutenant Governor, is there a Lieutenant Governor's mansion you can put a mezuzah on? <laughs> no, in fact, I'm staying in Longmeadow, Mark, much to your uh, much to your chagrin. So uh, my my kids are in uh, are in school in Longmeadow, so I'm 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 staying put. But we'll figure out a, a place to put a mezuzah at the state house. Not to my chagrin. It's all at the end of the day, we all close ranks behind Western Mass. If you can do it, if you can pull this off, becoming a Lieutenant Governor from Western Massachusetts. You're not just the Jew of the week, you're the human of the week. And we want to thank you for being uh, on our podcast, Senator Eric Lesser. Hey, thanks for having me. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. 
You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. To the mailbox, two letters this week. First of all, a nice little note from listener Marnie Halter in Toronto who wrote, Hey, Stephanie, Mark, and Liel, the last few episodes you've been talking about names for people who are half Jewish and half something else. On the last episode, Stephanie commented that all the names were food-related. I felt compelled to email my own non-food-related nickname. I'm an Ashkenazi Jew, and my husband is half Italian and half Newfoundlander, a.k.a. Newfie in Canada. He calls our sons the Jewfies. Keep up the good work. Marnie Halter. I love it. Love it. The Jewfies. Love it. Now, this is a bit trickier. This one's not just all sweetness and light. This is a toughie. From the Facebook group. Hello, everyone. Local Goy here with a question. Is it appropriate for me to give a mezuzah as a gift? Also, if you're local to Toronto, any suggestions for where I can buy one? Well, we're going to punt on that one of the best Judaica store in Toronto, which probably has several. But we're here to talk about whether it's appropriate to give a mezuzah as a gift. Why wouldn't it be? I'm surprised. I'm I'm curious. Well, no, like if you moved into a, a new home and then like your non-Jewish friend came over with a mezuzah for you, would you find that weird? Is it inappropriate? No, no. I think it's a tremendous sign of, you know, respect and learnedness and joy. I don't know. I think it's great. Your Jewish friends sure as hell you- aren't going to bring <laughs> your mezuzahs because they probably don't know what that is. So thank God there's one person who knows something. Right. We all need a mezuzah Gentile in our life. I am going to offer one tip. Make sure to also bring the cloth, the little scroll with Hebrew letters on it that goes on the inside because that's really expensive and not as easy to find. You can get a mezuzah online. Cloths, you probably can, but I mean, they're harder to find. You want to make sure they're kosher. You want to get it from a proper Judaica store. It's going to be 30 or $40. If you don't get them the cloth, the mezuzah will sit unused in a drawer. I speak from personal experience for years until they get around to ponying up for the little scroll. And from the profound to the practical, also enough already with uh, the hammering business. Guys, we have like Velcro tape. We have like the kind of double-sided tape that sticks very nicely to a door. No hammer required. Door frames are sometimes metal. They're hard. I've been through this a lot. Just use tape. It's fine. And as we say, the door door. By the way, that's also the name of our mezuzah company that goes with our unorthodox rabbinic that goes. Ladorvador, yeah, we go around. Yeah, it's non-Jews putting up mezuzahs on Jewish homes. <laughs> <laughs> so someone does it. So many business plans coming out of today's episode. <laughs> uh, Stephanie got all six hours of sleep last night. is our newest producer, and she's also on her way to becoming a Jew. 
With Passover coming up, she's getting into the kitchen and learning how to do it right. I'm currently converting to Judaism. I'm not doing it for marriage or anyone else. I'm doing it just for me. I've got a rabbi for my religious questions, but there's a lot about being Jewish that you can't learn in a classroom or at shul. For example, my rabbi can tell me about the Amidah or why we shake the lulav at Sukkot, but we don't really talk about cultural stuff like the best brisket recipes or our opinions on the latest season of Shtisel. Based on my time at Tablet, which is kind of like taking the best conversion class of all time, it seems like one of the most important of these cultural things is the food. Eating it, arguing about it, and of course, making it. Since I don't have a potential mother-in-law lying around, I have to sort out these Jewish recipes on my own. I'll be honest, some Jewish foods are never gonna be my cup of tea. I tried herring, actually on my first day working at Unorthodox, when we recorded the segment at Sherry Herring, and no shade to the chef, but truly it was the most disgusting thing I have ever eaten. But fortunately, there are a whole lot of Jewish foods I can't wait to spend a lifetime eating, like challah and kugel and falafel and shakshuka. So I'm going on a journey to learn to cook like a Jew, and I'm bringing you along with me. I knew there was only one place to start, with arguably the most quintessential of all Ashkenazi foods, chicken soup. Oh my God, oh my God, this is so gross. <laughs> Today, my guide is Unorthodox's producer, Josh Cross. You might not know this about him, but he's a pretty good cook. First things first, we got the ingredients. I've been very strongly informed that the best way to approach chicken soup is to approach it simply. So give me the basic rundown of what goes into your chicken soup. Simple. A whole chicken, carrots, onions, celery, turnips, which some people won't agree with. My mom used to use parsnips. And absolutely positively dill. And then you have to make the executive decision whether you're going to have matzo balls or noodles. I generally go with matzo ball. That's it. And some salt. But he warned me that half of you are going to tell me that he's wrong. Everything was familiar to me except the turnips, but according to Josh, that's what really makes it. You don't have to eat them, but the, they make the broth taste better. Okay. I cook a lot at home. I've read and watched every single thing that Samin Nostrat has ever worked on. And there was even a hot minute where I thought I wanted to go to culinary school, but I don't feel super comfortable cooking meat. Is it raw? Is it overcooked? Is it dry? Is it seasoned right? I can make some absolutely killer vegetables, but meat has always seemed too risky and expensive for me to spend a lot of time experimenting. Speaking of expensive meat, Josh insisted that we use kosher chicken to make our soup, even though neither of us keep kosher. If you're like me and you have a slightly fuzzy understanding of what it means to make meat kosher, it's worth taking a look at the basics. Let's get into it. The koshering process begins when the animal is slaughtered by a specially trained guy called a shochet, and then the animal is salted to draw out the blood. The salting also makes the meat taste better. It makes sense. If you've ever salted a steak long before you've grilled it or brined a turkey, then you know the difference that pre-salting makes. It allows the salt more time to work its tenderizing magic, 
and it helps the meat retain a lot more moisture. That's why a lot of people who don't keep kosher still opt for using kosher chicken, like Josh. If you ever have to cook a Thanksgiving turkey, mm -hmm. the extra expense, because kosher is exorbitantly expensive, is worth it for a kosher turkey because they stay moister. It, it's just, it just tastes better. Now that we're done with the theory, it's time to get cooking. The recipe isn't hard at all. You're basically chopping up a bunch of things and throwing them in a pot with some water. But Josh also showed me the craziest hack I had no idea about that if you grip the chicken skin with a paper towel, it acts like Velcro and takes the skin off super easily. Get yourself a paper towel, grab that skin with a paper towel and it's just gonna come right off. <gasps> right? Oh my God, that's such a good trick. Seriously, it was wild. As we cooked, we talked about our own experiences with chicken soup. You told me something interesting about when you've cooked chicken soup before, <laughs> and I want to mock you for it. Yeah, okay. The way that I cook chicken soup is I get cheesecloth, and I put all of my chicken and all of my herbs in the cheesecloth, and I, like, tie a little pouch out of it because I want to get the, like, nutrition and the goodness and the vitamins and everything out of the bones of the chicken, but I don't like eating <laughs> the chicken in my soup. So you, 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 to, 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 to be clear here, <laughs> you make chicken broth and throw out anything else that would go into it. No, no, I don't throw out anything else. I throw out the chicken, mm -hmm. but I keep, I keep, I keep the, the onions and the carrots and the celery and the noodles. I just throw out the chicken. Okay, so you make what the French call a bouquet garni, but you put the chicken in it. So you're pulling out your herbs and stems and stuff and the chicken meat. Yes. Okay, and the bones are in the bag too. It's wasteful and weird and picky, I know. And according to Josh, this is what's not Jewish about it. If we're talking about the shtetl, you weren't going to waste anything. The thing that feels very, very Jewish, and I guess Italian too, but very, very Jewish about cooking is you're not cooking for you. You're cooking, like when I make this, it's not for me. I, I'm going to enjoy it. When Liel talks about throwing a huge meal and he's cooking, he's talking about what he's going to serve to other people. That right there is actually part of why I'm converting. The shift in emphasis from the individual to the community. Sometimes it seems like American culture is all about the individual and individual responsibility for happiness. And I find that to be kind of apocalyptic and alienating and depressing. People are social and communal by nature, which is something that often gets lost. I think people my age, especially, think we can go it alone. Without community, without the sacred, without even office friends. We'll just work from home, do yoga from home, do everything alone. A new study from Harvard suggested that 36% of American adults suffer from loneliness. And the numbers are even higher amongst people my age. 61% of young adults are lonely. The importance and vitalness of community in Judaism is part of what initially drew me in, and it's something that I really relish as part of my conversion process. I know that leaving the chunks of chicken in my soup is not the cure to endemic loneliness, but the mindset of leaving the chunks of chicken is a start. What you were saying earlier about 
like Sephardic and Ashkenazi food traditions. It's like, it's something that I've been kind of pondering. You have the traditions that your family has, right? Sure, like I'm creating religious practices for myself, but how am I creating like cultural? Do I glom on to like Ashkenazi traditions because mm. I'm vaguely European or like, S like can I pick and choose? You know, it's... It's, it's, it's part of your um, privilege as a convert is you get to decide what, what speaks to you. I can tell you that there are certain dishes at certain holidays that I way prefer the Sephardic version. My Passover seders are better for having two different kinds of horosets. I'd love to have more Moroccan in my life or more Iraqi stuff in my mm -hmm. arsenal of dishes and stuff. Like, we're all better for having more of it. So don't get stuck in the, the Ashkenazi bubble. And you're not actually the first person that asked me that. Like, how do I know if I'm Ashki? You know, so the point is you're not. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you're not a Jew. Sometimes it feels like converting is a never-ending uphill battle. I'll never know everything, and I'm working on being okay with that. But Josh pointed out something that's undeniably a perk. I get to pull my favorite parts of different traditions together to make my own traditions. And that's kind of neat. For now, I'm glad to start with soup. Very good. The dough really makes it. Mazel tovs. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov this week? I have a mazel tov to Laura Slifer and Adam Butensky, my cousins, 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 who just got engaged, and we are so excited for them and happy to extend our already extended family. So welcome, Adam. You realize, Stephanie, that within Ashkenaz, we are all cousins, cousins, cousins. So I, they're my cousins too, and I send them a, a hearty mazel tov on there. I'm sorry I haven't met you yet. Next family reunion. Well, and will you send a gift is the question. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know how expensive the gifts I send are, Stephanie. I mean, yeah, I'll send, I'll pick a plate off the register. Sure, invite me. I will, I won't take the meal. Plate. I'll just give a gift. There you go. And I have uh, a two, two final thoughts. First, a mazel tov to Ukrainian runner Valentina Varetska, who won the women's division of the Jerusalem Marathon last week, shortly after escaping war in Ukraine and uh, moving to Israel. So mazel tov on your victory. And also a farewell to Madeleine Albright, who I just... I revere her, though I also think she probably kind of knew she was Jewish before the Washington Post told her. Before she went on Henry Louis Gates' show. <laughs> yeah. I. Whenever people are like, at 73, I discovered I was Jewish, but also I'm a brilliant person who has a doctorate and speaks five languages, but it never occurred to me that my refugee parents might be Jews. I, and they baked this bread every Friday night. <laughs> they braided it. Such a weird story. And they loved arguing, you know. <laughs> right. I, they were always playing Maj. That said, I revere Madeline Albright and I hope that she's, you know, running with my late dog, JJ, in the hereafter. So I have a, uh, a farewell as well to someone who definitely knew he was Jewish, uh, the great Rabbi Yosef Chaim Kanievsky, who's known as the Prince of Torah. Imagine having that. Dude, I'm known as the Prince of Torah. He <laughs> stole that from me. That's you're, you're the Dauphin. You're the Earl of Torah. <laughs> That's my Twitter handle, Prince the, of Torah. The Viscount of Torah. Uh, he was a leading authority in Israeli Orthodox circles, really one of the greatest tzaddikim, one of the greatest righteous scholars, lived in a two-bedroom apartment stuffed with books, a tremendously learned man and a person who cared deeply about his community and about all Jews. Uh, he passed away last week at the age of 94. May his memory be a blessing to us all. 
Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Studios and hosted by Mark Oppenheimer and Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibovitz. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. Our producer is Robert Scaramucci and our associate producer is Quinn Waller. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or, you know, if there's a social media channel we're missing, let us know. We'll join it. We sell swag, t-shirts, onesies, bit.ly slash unortho shirt. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem. And our mailbox theme is by Steve Martin. The recording of Matchmaker, Matchmaker was from our friend Bram Presser and his band Yidkor. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Eve Posen at Congregation Neve Shalom in Portland, Oregon. And we come to you from the newly rebuilt out of scrap driftwood that washed up in Baja, California, Tablet Studios. Where we're dusting it all off, shellacking it, polishing it, sanding it down, and getting back in the game. Shalom, friends. Dude, I'm the fucking Prince of Torah, okay?